Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome to the LSC for this morning's event, which forms part of both LSC's 7th Space for Thought Literary Festival and also the 50th anniversary celebration of the Department of Social Psychology at LSC. I am Sandra Jovcelovic, Professor of Social Psychology here at the school, and I'm very pleased to welcome our distinguished panel to the LSC this morning. Lisa Apinianessi is a writer, novelist, and broadcaster. She is the former chair of the Freud Museum in London, the former president of English Pen, and former deputy director of London's Institute of Contemporary Arts. Her nonfiction includes Bad, Mad, Bad, and Sad, A History of Women and the Mind, Doctors, which won the BMA Award for the Public Understanding of Science, amongst other prizes, the acclaimed family memoir, Losing the Dead, which she will be reading from this morning, and most recently, Trials of Passion, Crimes in the Name of Love and Madness. Her novels include Paris Reckin, The Memory Man, and The Dead of Winter. Our next panelist, Owen Shears, has written two collections of poetry, The Blue Book and Skirt Hill, which won a Somerset Morgan Award. His verse drama, Pink, Means, Pink Mist, won Wales Book of the Year and the Hay Festival Poetry Medal. His nonfiction includes The Dust Diaries and Cullen, A Journey to the Heart of Welsh Rugby. His first, <laughs> his first novel, Resistance, has been translated into 10 languages. It was made into a film in 2011. His plays include The Passion, The Two Worlds of Charlie F. and Mamets. Owen wrote and presented BBC's four, uh, BBC Four's A Poet's Guide to Britain. He has been an NYPL Coleman Fellow, writing in residence for the World Trust, and artist in residence for the Welsh Rugby Union, as one does. <laughs> Uh, his second novel, I Saw a Man, will be published by Faber in 2015. Our final panelist, Darren Leader, is a psychoanalyst working in London and a founder member of the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research. He's president of the College of Psychoanalysts UK and visiting professor at the School of Human and Social Life Sciences at Roehampton University. He is the author of several books, including Introducing Lacan, Stealing the Mona Lisa, What Art Stops Us from Seeing, The New Black, Mourning, Melancholia and Depression, and What is Madness. His most recent book is Strictly Bipolar, was published by Hamish Hamilton in 2013. Now, for those uh, Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSC LitFest, and I would ask you to please put your phones on silence so as not to disrupt the event. <coughs> this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. After the discussion, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to the panel, and there will also be a book signing taking place following the event, with copies of books from all our speakers available for purchase. 
Let's start then with the topic of our panel, which asks why remember? Why should we remember? And what happens when we cannot remember? We'll be exploring our relationship with the past, sometimes a traumatic past, and consider the importance of place and landscape in memory, as well as the nature of collective memory and memorialization, particularly in the context of war. Each panelist will speak for approximately 15 minutes, and this will be followed by a discussion between the panel. We will then open up for discussions, uh, questions from the audience for the last 30 minutes or so. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Thank you, Sandra. I think I'm slated to go first. Can you hear me? No. I think I'll. Can you hear me now? No. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should stand. What about now? Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'll try and stay close to the mic. Um, um, it's so good to see so many of you here this morning. We were just saying as we walked in, well, is there anybody here? Because <laughs> it's rainy and cold. And um, Listening to Sandra introduce me, I realized that I could now just substitute my name for former. <laughs> 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 and therefore, the question why I remember becomes incredibly significant. Uh, because, of course, I've now... Uh, entered the age where I no longer remember people's names. And sometimes, if I haven't got my glasses on, I'm not sure I remember their faces either. Um, but as a, as a short and simple answer to the question, why remember? I mean, I think, you know, memory has become incredibly important in our time, almost as a kind of uh, a collective word to... Um, replace the world, word soul. Um, and I think that's one of the things that happened. Memory has become collectively a site of identity. Um, it used to be nationalism constituted that identity. And of course, memory goes into constituting nationalism. It goes into constituting ethnicities. Um, and indeed, increasingly, as religions have entered the political domain, they had before, of course, but once more in our time, it's become important there. And um, um, one of the things that happens in the collective memory of things is that it became, I think, important through identity politics in the 80s to name a site of trauma as something that constituted that identity or made it real, made it something that you could internalize as a space of soul. And increasingly, identity groups, am I, am I being difficult to hear? I see people have got... Would you like me to stand up? Is that better if I stand here? Yes? Okay, I'm so sorry. I was just saying that... that um, Memory had become increasingly important in our time because it was a way of collectively constituting identity so that people, um, um, through the moment of identity politics, when politics became cultural, if you like, um, began to see a collectivity in remembered sites, either of place, countries that you'd left in a century of displacement, or trauma, uh, war, um, a, a, a site where wounds had been created and one could become 
collectively whole and constitute oneself through that. But that's not what I'm going to talk about because although this session is meant to be both about collective identity, it's also about um, individual memory and remembering. And um, I'm going to talk quite personally and, and about what went into the making of this book called Losing the Dead, which is not unrelated to what I've just said because I think one of the sites of collective memorialization, which became increasingly important in making up who we are um, as a group, was the Holocaust. And um, this book is Losing the Dead is, is my attempt to come to terms with my parents' memory and rememberings and forgettings as well um, as they went through the post-war period. They had spent the war in Poland as Jews and therefore as a persecuted group, of course, many of whom ended up dead. They managed to stay alive um, in part because they were very lucky but also because of a certain ability that I think comes more easily to the young, um, the old tended to, to die. Um, they went around through six very long years of war, masquerading as different people, using different names, moving from place to place, and having a very difficult but also retrospectively at moments, for my mother in particular, a very interesting time of life, a very heightened time of life, um, um, where danger, you know, uh, actually works on the self to leave a certain kind of imprint, which isn't totally negative. So I say that because I know it's slightly contentious to say, but that is the case. Um, so I've, I wrote this book. I started to work on this book um, because I hadn't really been interested in that history. It had been too much a part of my early childhood. And by the time I became a teenager, I, I thought, you know, the last thing I want to hear is another wartime story. So, you know, I, I stopped uh, listening. My parents had stopped talking. The, the politics of the time... Um, and for those of you who have traced this or indeed have lived it, you will know that the word Holocaust was not used immediately after the Second World War. It only came into, began, began to come into use after the Eichmann trial in 63, because that was a worldwide media event. And then increasingly, as time went on, it became the word and the way one thought about the Second World War, particularly for Jews, gays, and gypsies. Do you see, again, other identity groups um, plus a religion plus an ethnicity? So um, I, I wasn't at all interested in this, except the moment came when my mother grew old. I think she was around 79, 80, and she began to lose her memory. Um, she entered a time of what gently one used to call dotage, um, but now usually goes under the name of Alzheimer's. And this happened at a time before the word Alzheimer's had taken on the huge currency that it has at the moment. So we didn't, as her children, uh, or indeed her grandchildren, recognize the signs. And the signs, of course, are different for different individuals. It's not just that you forget names. Everybody forget names. It becomes more serious. Um, in my mother's case, the, the particular foible and I like to think of it as a foible, although it can also prove very difficult to contend with, was that she started seeing her brother, who had um, been very important in 
helping the family to survive the war, helping her and my father and my older brother to survive the war. Um, he had disappeared in 1943 and was never found again. And it was the great loss of her life. People who go through wars and times where, you know, of huge difficulty, often their lives are characterized by loss, something Darian can speak about very well too. Anyhow, my mother... Um, what was later diagnosed as Alzheimer's, one of the first signs was that she would see her brother everywhere. And, um, for example, we'd be watching the television. Um, the children were then small with her, and she'd suddenly say, there he is, look, and she'd point to this newscaster who was, you know, all of 28. <laughs> and um, the children would say, but Gran, that can't be your brother. Um, your brother would now be 83. <laughs> um, and she'd say, she'd insist, no, 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 that's my brother. And eventually um, the moment would go on and she'd say, well, maybe, maybe it's his son. We have to ring the BBC. And she would be very adamant about our telephoning the BBC and so on. And this kind of incident uh, would recur and recur. And um, it was very, very difficult to live with. Um, then the hallucinations came and so on, but, but all that's in the book. But what, what happened for me was that I thought, well, you know, sorry, another sign of this was that she would tell her wartime story, stories over and over again. And these stories, which had been quite elaborate, these bits of her memory that had stayed, now became reduced. They became like tableaus, and the same things would be repeated over and over. There was no surrounding detail. So that in a the sense, they, like her own mind, had, had um, grown plaques <laughs> and, and, and um, um, become fetishized in a way. And it seemed to me that one thing that I could do as a, as a rather renegade daughter was that, and writer is that I could try and fill out these memories for her and do what she had long asked me to do, which was to write her war. Um, and so I set out to explore this um, story. And if you like to, to uh, pit memory against history, history is the recorded form of events. Um, it's what's available in documents um, and, and is echoed by many other sources. Um, memory is what you experience, of course, individually and, and can recall. Um, so I started to work on this subject. And of course, as I say, it was also at a time when memory had become very interesting as a kind of intellectual trope. I don't know if you know Ian Hacking's book on, on the soul. Um, there were conferences all over the place about ways to memorialize and ways to think the past and, and to, to flesh it out rather than repress it. Now, as, as I speak, I would like you to think about the fact that forgetting is as important as remembering in constituting both the self and the collectivity. If we remember too much, we never step forward. And of course, memory itself atrophies, and, and we think we're remembering something that we've loaded with emotion, but in fact, all we've got is this little kernel. We don't have a full, full enough picture, but it's a kernel filled with emotion. So that's one kind of memory. And I'll just read you a little bit of what I thought I was doing um, from the book. 
So it can hardly be coincidental that I want to remember, to uncover, to know, at the moment when my last gateway to family memory, my mother, is losing hers. Her bewilderment as I try to press her on facts and dates which are always just out of her reach is painful. She can only return and return again to what she has already told me, scraps of unruly experience which refuse the consecutive shape of story. Her memory has taken on the randomness of dream, unconstrained by any order or external prodding. Keeping pace with the increasing limitations of her daily life, it has also grown poorer in detail so that I have to fill in from previous tellings the gaps in hers. Many still remain and have to be leapt over like holes in a worn pavement. Sometimes her body remembers more than her mind. She will look up at me from eyes that are still deeply blue and strike a coquettish pose as if she were addressing some ghostly admirer whose name and face and place have long since vanished. I can read more from these startling gestures than from her words. She talks often to her father and to mine, she tells me, as if one could phone the dead on a daily basis, but too often they speak to her only of the weather. Perhaps in her dotage, that nice word which takes a cup of tea to senility and wraps a scarf round the cold throat of Alzheimer's, she has finally become English. It is to anchor myself against the rudderless ship of her mind that I finally decide to write all this down. Writing has to entail some kind of order, even if the voyage into the past is always covered by invention. Memory is also a form of negotiation. There is more. In an act of reparation, since I am a bad daughter who refuses her mother both her present and much of her presence, I would love to give my mother I would like to give my mother's past back to her intact, clear, with all its births and deaths and missing persons in place. The task I know is impossible. The dead are lost. But maybe, nonetheless, it makes a difference if by remembering them we lose them properly. So that was, the, if you like, the challenge of writing this book, which then goes back into uh, the sites of memory, the, the sites that need to be excavated, um, which in my case, in my family's case, was Poland. Um, but I couldn't, you know, I did all the research for this book, and then I just couldn't write it, because, you know, the history is huge, and the war years were terrible, um, and the stories that people tell themselves to get through are not always the same as the history. Um, and I just couldn't write it because I couldn't find the voice. I'm a writer. I'm, I'm not just a documentarist, if you like. Um, and then I remembered my father, who had predeceased my mother by, by you know, 20 years. I remembered my father's dying. And as I remembered that, um, I suddenly had a voice that would take me back into that time and let me negotiate, if you like, the past and give me the reasons for remembering. So I'd like to just read you the very beginning of this book, um, which is, you know, my father's dying. Not a subject for a Saturday morning, but never mind. And um, because I think it, it takes us into another kind of remembering, which is the kind of remembering that is unwilled. It's not me trying to remember a name. It's not us grouping collectively in front of a cenotaph, but it's the kind of memory that people would actually rather 
be rid of. Um, it's what has become known as traumatic memory. It's the memory, if you like, that, that um, therapists and analysts try to work with. It's not altogether Freud's reminiscences that plague you through bodily symptoms, but it's more related to that than the other kinds of rememberings. So this is the beginning of the book. In my father's last days, he transformed the ordinary London hospital ward where he lay into an an SS camp. The white-coated doctors became black-uniformed officers, their boots hammering over floorboards with deadly intent as they approached his cell. Medical implements were instruments of torture, the oxygen mask a purveyor of poison gas. My momentarily absent mother was a whore servicing the ranks, whether willingly or not, was a moot point. In any case, she was not altogether to be trusted. Only I was, and I would help him to get out of here. His hand gripped my wrist. His eyes, two glistening points of feverish pleading and an ashen face, gazed at me in desperation. He seemed to know me, though I didn't know who that me was meant to be. A sister not yet lost, perhaps. He spoke in Yiddish, a language he hadn't used to address me in for over 30 years. And he spoke with a flat, grim certainty, his voice a hoarse whisper, emerging from some depth of pain and history. Occasionally he would raise his head from the pillow and with a tense alertness echoed in the bite of his fingers would check to see whether one of them was listening. My rational protests were shushed into stillness. A day earlier, he had tried to make his escape, a pyjama-clad figure breaking out from the confines of University College Hospital into the freedom of the streets. He had been brought back by an informer in cahoots with my mother. But that night, with my help, his escape would be certain. It was that night he died, November 20th, 1981. The content of my father's diabetic delirium shook me. He hadn't talked of the war years since my childhood. Yet at at the end, they were there, intact, like some willfully obscured and venomous secret which all his later experience couldn't obliterate. A slight shift of the kaleidoscope of consciousness and those distant years surfaced, still charged with enough raw emotion to propel his hallucinatory fantasies. Terror for him always came in uniform. Um, Sorry, that made me rather tearful. (laughs) I shouldn't have, but it did. Um, So I think all I want to say about this is that, you know, there are these different ways of remembering, and some of the rememberings come upon you, and others are willed. I mean, you know, if we went to look at Proust, of course, we would find that in a very different form. Uh, Proust's so-called unconscious memory, um, you know, the memory that comes through drinking a cup of tea and dipping a madeleine in it, um, is, if you like, more akin to that traumatic memory, although in his case it's a nostalgic and good memory of childhood. Um, than all those other kinds of memories that he has in writing the book of you know, going to parties and seeing the Duchesse de Guermantes and the Red Slippers and so on and so on. So, so these are different ways of remembering, and maybe I'll just leave it there, and um, we'll come back to various things in discussion. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much, Lisa, um, for that fascinating talk. And actually, uh, several things there that I'll be um, uh, picking up on um, in what I'll be speaking about. Um, over the last couple of years, I've worked on um, a couple of projects that have been based on around uh, 30 interviews that I did with um, a, a recently wounded uh, service personnel, both uh, psychologically and physically wounded, and also their families, and specifically the, the uh, mothers, the wives, um, the girlfriends, the uh, uh, women who are very often are the people who have to stay on the front line of those woundings. And in terms of memory, are the people who have to try to draw their young men uh, back from their memories of conflict, um, quite often back to uh, memories of childhood and, of course, into the present. Um, the first of these projects was called The Two Worlds of Charlie F., and I suppose at its heart was the concept of trying to recapture um, various kinds of traumatic memories in that it was a play that uh, was based upon the experiences of these uh, wounded service personnel, but in which they also formed the cast. So I spoke with them and we uh, created a script which was not entirely verbatim but which was very much fueled from their um, experience and then we asked them to get on the stage and to act out these experiences in front of audiences of um, a thousand people. And so um, as you can imagine this was um, a very um, a risky line to walk but it was um, a fascinating process and I'm very pleased to say it was a very um, a successful process. Um, and as a writer, what I became intrigued by was firstly the power of actually recapturing these memories, these memories that these, these quite often very young men, we're talking sort of 18, 19, 20 years old, had found very, very difficult to face. They were then having to replay and to essentially react. Um, in the end, they did 125 performances of this. Um, but what seemed to be uh, crucial in terms of the healing part of this process was that they were always playing uh, uh, characters that were based upon themselves but were absolutely characters. And so their characters were just here. They were very, very close, but it, it became evident that it was this distance between their own experience and the experience of the character that enabled them to be on the stage and to, and to really sort of re-embody um, those moments and to find a new way of remembering their experience that would enable them to go forward. Um, that's just to give you some background. Um, what I thought I would speak about um, in this 50 minutes is just a couple of the ideas that sort of crossed my path while I was working with those young service personnel. And I want to begin with what I suppose you could argue is um, a particularly intense form of memory, or you might argue is um, a perversion of memory, the concept of um, nostalgia. Now, the term nostalgia, um, as I'm sure some of you here will um, already know, was first coined in the 17th century by um, a medical student to try to describe and to um, define the, the uh, mental trauma of uh, Swiss mercenaries who were fighting for great lengths of time um, away from home. And the word obviously comes from the Greek, um, anostos, meaning homecoming, um, or um, a return home, um, and algos, meaning pain. So it's, it's that pain for home, it's that intense longing for home. And um, I learned this because in the process of writing The Two Worlds of Charlie F., I wanted to, um, to have one of the characters at one point to speak the full list of the various phrases and terms that the medical and the military um, um, establishment have tried to coin as a way of describing what happens to us in terms 
of memory um, and mental trauma after conflict. And so the first of these words is um, nostalgia. There are some surprisingly lyrical terms in this list, such as wind contusions um, and soldier's heart, um, obviously shell shock, um, lack of moral fibre. We've got the um, RAF to thank for that one. Um, Old sergeant syndrome. And then it it sort of comes through the years until we're left with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, But what I found fascinating is that at the heart of a lot of people's experience of PTSD is still this concept of nostalgia, but that the original meaning of the world has been inverted in the contemporary experience. And what I mean by that is where those Swiss mercenaries were missing home. A very constant note I found in the young people that I was speaking about is that actually it's not so much a pain for home, it's the pain of returning home. And at the heart of that pain is not a nostalgia for home, but a nostalgia for combat, for war. Most of the young men that I spoke to, um, although some of them were very severely wounded, had lost several limbs or were suffering um, very severe um, uh, mental aftershock from their um, experience, very much... Uh, and very dearly wanted to be back in combat. So I suppose I just wanted to pitch that idea up there and just to ask why that was, and, and obviously there were many reasons for this, but in short, and the one that I became fascinated about, was that it became clear that in, in the world of contemporary conflict, and I, and I suppose I should stress that I'm talking about Western soldiers who are um, a professional army, who choose, and again, though, this was interesting, most of the people I spoke to weren't choosing so much to join the army as to leave something else. Um, In Britain, we recruit most of our armed forces from the poorest parts of the country, and nearly everyone I spoke to was uh, choosing to leave uh, various uh, situations at home, be that difficult situations in the family or unemployment um, or boredom. They're also very young. Um, uh, Britain is still the only country in the um, EU where you can join the army as um, a child soldier at 16. Uh, You can actually begin the process at 15. And I think all of this feeds into it. But at the heart um, was the fact that what I realised was that in combat there were a series of psychological and um, emotional hungers that were satisfied in these young men that were left unfulfilled at home. And these were a sense of belonging, a sense of um, importance, a sense of contribution, and very interestingly, um, a very intense sense of love. It's something that the military um, encourages, is this this tightening bond... um, which sort of descends from your regiment through your battalion, through your, your four-man fire team, right down to your oppo, your partner in the field. Um, and it became very clear to me that this was at the heart of this nostalgia for combat, which I found obviously a very, very sad thought, the thought that this was um, a series of, as I say, psychological and emotional hungers that, that contemporary society was not fulfilling in these young men. Um, Just to touch upon something else, um, I suppose in, in working on these projects um, as a writer, um, I found myself thinking increasingly in a post-conflict situation, who is remembered and who is doing the remembering? If we take the perspective of, um, of literature and perhaps specifically poetry, you can argue that it, it's around the First World War that poetry first becomes um, a voice of witness and I suppose sort of sets the blueprint for what we now think a war poetry should be. 
But from that war onwards, actually, writers have, have, um, have increasingly written at a greater and greater distance from, uh, from combat uh, until in the contemporary world we're in a situation where, where what tends to happen is exactly what I did, is that you have, is that you have writers dropping in on the experience of others um, and sort of becoming um, a conduit, becoming a voice for others but not from their, their immediate um, experience. And what you realise when that happens is that the spectrum of stories of memories that are being told from the contemporary conflict is actually remarkably narrow. And obviously, a lot has been written about the um, asymmetric uh, uh, nature of the um, post-9-11 conflicts, but I think not as much has been spoken about the asymmetric asymmetric quality of the memory of those those conflicts. Um, And just to take an example of this, because of my experience um, uh, 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 with these young soldiers... I was recently asked to write the introduction to um, a tribute that the uh, Telegraph were publishing to the 453 uh, British service personnel who were killed in um, Afghanistan. And as I was contributing to this tribute, which was, in the pages that followed, what you had was intensely personal memories from the families of these people. Um, And that in itself was interesting. I suddenly became incredibly aware how, at the beginning of war, the narratives obviously tend to be broad. They tend to be on, on the scope of nations and, and history. And unfortunately, it's only at the end of wars or, or after wars that they become detailed and personal. And I couldn't help but feel that what we need is an inversion of that process as well, and that we need to remember the detail and the personal at the start of wars. But, but of course, obviously what you felt as you read through these 453 uh, personal memories is that is that in a way there was a sense of um, occupation of this conflict as well, and that we were not hearing any of the personal stories of the hundreds of thousands of Afghan civilians who had been killed, or the, or the Afghan interpreters and the police and the soldiers, and that there was an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary moment of distancing, and I think a very, very dangerous moment of distancing in terms of how, of how we choose to remember our conflicts and just how how blinkered that memory can be. And so I suppose within that context, if I were to be answering the uh, a title of this talk, Why Remember, I'd say, well, obviously, we need to remember it. It's the only way that we are, that we will learn, that we will heal, and that we will pass on both our mistakes and our successes. But for God's sake, we need to remember in the round. And I would argue that any sort of selective memory of conflict, which is absolutely what we have, is as, is as dangerous as actually not remembering it at all. Um, I want to finish by reading a short extract from the second work that came out of those interviews. Um, as I explained, the Tools of Charlie F. was um, a recovery project before it was a, a piece of theatre, so it was very important that the stories, those memories on stage, that they very closely echoed the cast. And I suppose as a writer, and again talking about the occupation of memory perhaps, I felt that I still had an awful lot that I wanted to explore, that I wanted to say... And I wanted to have a, a greater degree of, um, of a flexibility, perhaps, in what I could do with these experiences. And so it was out of that, out of that motivation that I wrote Pink Mist, which is um, a verse drama, which is very much fuelled by those interviews, but which then takes them into work of um, imagination. And I just want to read a short extract that, I suppose, in terms of memory, touches upon something else, which was a very constant note that I came across, um, particularly in 
the service personnel I met who, who were suffering from PTSD, which is that concept of extreme memory as a symptom. The flashback, the nightmare, the painful echo that will keep someone awake for two years, that will haunt them. I suppose a memory as haunting, which of course psychologically and physiologically is the body's attempt to try to uh, compute, to try to understand what that person has um, experienced. Um, and just to give you some context for this um, extract, uh, it's in the voice of the main character, Arthur. And it's at a point in his story when, having been on tour in um, Afghanistan and seen uh, uh, two of his friends, Hads and Taf, um, uh, uh, both be wounded, he then comes home for two weeks R&R. And again, in terms of memory and place, everyone I spoke to said that they would rather not have that two weeks um, R&R because the contemporary soldier obviously comes back from combat very, very quickly in 12 or 13 hours. But psychologically, obviously, it's impossible to come back that quickly. So these are very young boys, quite often will have dropped out of education at the age of 14 or 15, who are expected to go from a world of extreme violence where they are rewarded for their violence um, and then they are suddenly dropped into the so-called normal world where they are expected to be that brother, that son, that husband. And as you can imagine, it's an incredibly difficult transition for them to try to make. Um, and it finishes in the voice of Arthur's girlfriend, uh, Gwen. And what I want to say about that is that I suppose what her little poem touches upon is something else uh, that was very common, which is the attempt of couples to try to remember... Um, a pre-conflict relationship or um, a marriage, which, as you can imagine, is very, very difficult when one person um, in that relationship has had such extreme experiences and feels that, that their wife um, or, or their girlfriend just cannot simply understand that. Uh, and, of course, it, it, it sort of, it's that failure. It's that failure to remember the shared experience, which is sort of the drop point, the beginning point for these... Um, these concentric rings of damage, which quite tragically, you can see, will quite often um, um, animate um, from that individual through the relationship, through families, and uh, through children. And, and it's sort of what you witness then is an incredible uh, and, as I say, um, a tragic um, manifestation of the hold that these memories have upon those young boys. So I'll finish with this. I think the only other thing I need to say is that I mentioned Bryce, and Bryce is uh, Bryce Norton, the airport just outside Oxford that uh, most of the British troops um, fly into when they come home. I checked into a hotel outside Bryce, lay on the bed till dawn, scared to close my eyes, then got the bus to Seven Beach, first thing. When I got there, the place was empty, nothing. Seven Beach, end of the line, literally, just the bridge disappearing towards Wales and the river wide as a sea, sluggish under it. Not even the fishermen yet, hooking their bait, casting the lines, just the houses, all safe and sealed. Seven Beach, it's where I'm from since the age of one, but I may as well have been back in the field on patrol or in some village in Afghan. It all looks so strange, unreal. I let myself in. Drop my kit to the floor, then climb the stairs, quiet, so as not to wake mum. I open the door to my bedroom, footy posters on the wall, the same checked duvet, a kid's room, a flashback to before this began. Then, before I know it, I'm on my knees, opening the bottom drawer in the chest, pulling out old T-shirts and vests to uncover under them a row of eggs blown and bedded 
in their cotton wool nests. We had this thing, me, Hads and Taff, out by the bridge in Clifton. We dare each other to touch bits of rock, pushing each other further and further out onto the open limestone cliffs. That bit there with the moss, that white patch, the outcrop, that kind of thing. One day I thought I'd give them a scare, so I climbed further out past the dare, went right out of sight, slipping in under an overhang, then sitting tight as they shouted my name, shitting themselves I dropped and they'd never see me again. Stupid, really. Still don't know why, but I'm glad I did. Because it was only then that I noticed the bird, a peregrine, circling above me in the gorge, screeching a repeating cry. I looked to my right and I saw why, her nest scraped out of soil on the ledge and inside, right in the middle, two perfect brown speckled eggs. Hads and Taff were still shouting for me, but I couldn't hear them no more. So I edged along closer, and again, I don't know why, reached out and took one. Still warm. And now, three years later, here it was again in my T-shirt drawer. The first of twelve eggs I collected that spring. Heron, jackdaw, crow, lapwing, but the best was always hers, that peregrine's. I knew it was wrong even then, but I was sixteen and wanted something just mine. A secret I shared with no one. And maybe that's why on that R&R I went straight back to them. Because each one, though empty, was full with the feel of the day when I found it. The touch of the wind, the taste of the rain. Each was a moment alone again. A stealing of an egg and more. I put my hand into the drawer. Picked up the herons, a pale sky blue. Barely there on my palm, smooth and cool. I closed my eyes and tried to see that day again. It was March. I was bunking off from school. A breeze in the reeds, the water over my boots. Stupid thing to do. To think I could get away so easily, no chance. As soon as my eyes were shut, I saw them instead, those two Yanks. The ones who said they'd take our place, who drove on ahead to the front of the convoy, then round a corner where... By the time we got there, their Humvee was a ball of flame burning in the middle of the street. I saw them climb out, both on fire. They ran, who knows why, but they did. Two burning guys, puppets of flame. The first, blinded, ran into a wall, tried to stub himself out, then fell. The other carried on down the street ten, twenty feet before dropping to his knees. He held his arms out for a moment, a flaming cross, then tipped forward onto his face and died. I opened my eyes. Sweat on my wrists. I was back in my childhood room, footy posters on the wall, my opened palm closed into a fist, the pale blue shards of the heron's egg scattered inside the drawer like a broken promise. That night, when you finally came home, I felt like that egg in your palm crushed to the bone. We'd waited so long, we joked about it, I'd even sent you porn, but we both knew this could be us at our best, together, tender, close, my hands on your back, my breaths on your chest. I used to feel blessed when we did it, and I know you did too, stunned by how easily we made one out of two. But not anymore. Afterwards I wanted to weep, but I didn't want to show you that. I'd expected lust, yes, but it wasn't. It was anger, and not spent either, but still there, as you pulled out of me and sat on the edge of the bed, getting dressed. We going out, that's all you said, like nothing had happened. Yeah, I replied, 
trying to understand what it was that had died. Looking back, though, perhaps you were right, because nothing is what it was. Nothing. That's what you filled me with that night. Thank you very much. So, let's start by noting what seems to be a tension in contemporary culture between, on the one hand, the imperative to remember, while constantly urged not to forget significant events in our lives, especially traumatic ones, and on the other hand, the contemporary imperative, equally, if not more powerful, which is precisely to abolish, erode the dimension of human narrative. That The more that a human being has become identified with a unit of energy in the market, a set of skills, human resources, which is basically the model that governs our market today, it means that one human being can be substituted for another human being at apparently no cost. In the 1950s, people would sometimes complain to their therapists that the bank teller had changed, the person that they'd see maybe once a week or once every two weeks, who'd give them their cash. If that person was replaced by someone else, this could be a minor catastrophe in the life of the person. Compare that today with a culture in which not only the bank teller, but the GP everyone around one in the workplace, one's teachers, one's counsellor, anyone can be replaced as long as they have the same skill set as others. So we have, on the one hand, a culture in which the dimension of the historicity of human relations is perpetually eroded, anti-narrative, and on the other hand, the memory industry, which is always pushing us not to forget and to value our historical links to the past. Now, Lisa evoked earlier the work of the philosophers and historians around the theme of memory. And one of the most important things that philosophers like Ian Hacking and others have shown is that the particular theories of memory that we have today are really quite recent in origin And in particular, the idea that there's an indissoluble link between memory, and in particular the continuity of memory, and the self. To such an extent that today people can... Lisa um, had quite a few things to say about the question of Alzheimer's. It's very common to hear people around an Alzheimer's sufferer say, well, they're not the same person. Why? because they can't remember things, perhaps they can't remember who I am, perhaps they can't remember other people close to them. The implication there is that the criterion for selfhood is precisely a continuity of memory. It's something that's certainly specific to Western culture. Anthropologists working in other parts of the world have noted that there's much less of an emphasis on continuity of memory or indeed on the robustness of memory at all 
in other parts of the world. But certainly, the dominant model in Western culture is this continuity of memory and the link or even the equation of the continuity of memory with the self. Now, one of the implications of that is that once that model is established, it means that any fractures, any gaps in memory will start to automatically be seen as symptomatic or pathological and that there'll be an effort, another imperative, to reconstruct the broken chain of memory, to find the missing memories, to restore the narrative of a life once we assume that it's memory and it's continuity that defines that life. It's a very simple logic. And that's one of the reasons for the proliferation of the contemporary memory and trauma industry. Trauma seen, let's say, in a a loose sense, as that which disrupts the continuity of memory, that which is a breach in memory and one sense of history, something that can't be integrated into the story of a human life. And hence, often the well-intentioned efforts to restore that missing piece, to restore the unity, the continuity of this fabric of memory via the recovery of perhaps the lost memories of traumatic experience. Now this is something which clearly will change historically in a given culture for a number of reasons, but primarily that the form in which that fracture crystallizes in this fracture between the continuity of history and something that can't be integrated into the history, different historical moments will have different ways of conceptualizing it or today medicalizing it. And um, Owen evoked the long list of names that societies have given to problems in war. We could think about the cardiac problems that characterized the American Civil War, the soldier's heart, shell shock of the First World War, combat fatigue of the Second World War, the PTSD that followed Vietnam, and many other examples that the medical anthropologists and others have studied and shown very well how the list of symptoms that defines what can't be integrated into the historical and social chain can take different forms, somatic, psychical, whatever the emphasis happens to be in the given culture. Now, that brings us to two questions. First of all, a very obvious question, should we remember what seems not to be integrated into that historical chain? And secondly, in a way, a question which one has to pose beforehand, is it possible to restore that fracture? Are traumatic experiences, some of them at least, are they actually susceptible to be reintegrated into what we call, again casually, the chain of memory? I think that one of the most important factors to to think about here is regardless of the historical specificity of those different models, shell shock, soldier's hearts, combat fatigue and so on 
all of them revolve around the recognition that something is inassimilable to the subject psyche. Something can't be integrated, something is broken. Yeah? Then we have to think about the question, could it be that this inassimilable element is such that it can never be brought to the level of an image or to the level of language, something that can't be readily integrated in any way into what we could call, again, very simply human reality, which is made up more or less of a kind of matrix of images and language that make up the, the discourses that we inhabit. Why is that such an important question? Again, the answer is very simple, because... Why is that an important question? Again, the answer is very simple here. That if there is an inassimilable nature to certain kinds of traumatic experience, it follows that if we try to force the person to reconstruct an image or a memory in speech, in a declarative sense, around that experience... And if it simply can't pass to that level of symbolization or of image, that opens up a number of dangers, of risks for the person, that those elements will re-emerge in another register. It could be in the register of a hallucination. It could be in the register of somatic symptoms. It is interesting that after the war... It was noted again and again by psychiatrists and analysts that those who had survived the camps, they never went to see shrinks. They never went to psychoanalysts or psychotherapists. They went to doctors of the body. It was somatic problems that would generate the address to the medical other for many of those subjects rather than any idea of a psychological working through the kind of terms that have gained more and more currency since then. Once we recognise that there is something that can't be imagined or said, that would then perhaps encourage us to treat traumatic experiences with great caution and not automatically try to force the subject to articulate them. Now, this again introduces an important distinction. If one isn't trying to encourage the person to remember, if one isn't trying to encourage the subject to articulate, doesn't that still leave a number of other areas, crucial areas, beyond the immediate idea of representation and perhaps more linked to a wide range of practices that we could call inscription? So we could contrast work around trauma that focuses on the idea of representing the trauma to restore the chain of memory and work around trauma that moves away from the idea of the benefits of memory and more towards the idea of the importance of any kind of activity of inscription that might be important for that subject, which doesn't suppose, and I think this is really the important point, which doesn't suppose necessarily that the person has been able to ascribe meaning to the traumatic events. Yeah? 
So there's a difference between the practices based around trying to restore representation and meaning, they generally go together, and practices which revolve more around the idea of making a trace or an inscription, perhaps around something that can never be remembered, that we have to, in many cases, respect the limits of what can pass to the level of language or of any kind of imagery. Where we do find that impossibility, where we encounter those limits at the level of language and images, we do find something else of particular importance and frequency, which is linked to one of the themes of this morning, the link of memory to place and geography. With great frequency, you find that when someone has no memory of a traumatic event, and you might have reasonable grounds for assuming that such an event happened from other sources, let's say, what you find again and again is that in the person's dreams, there'll be tiny details, not of human interaction, not of human relations, not necessarily of pain, but rather simply markers of geographical space a view through a window, a pattern on a carpet, a stain on a wall, something to do with a wallpaper. And it's interesting here, it's well known that dreams never really follow visual associations, that if you study the moment that a dream moves from one point to another, you're in one place and then suddenly you're in another place and then you're somewhere else, if you look at those moments where each part of the dream moves to another point, you'll find that in almost all cases, this operates through verbal associations. The sound of a word or the resonances of a word will determine the link once you investigate it thoroughly enough. But what you hardly ever find is visual associations. So let's say in one part of the dream, there'd be a bullet hole in glass And that would move to the image of, let's say, a daisy, which would then move to the image of half a grapefruit. Visually, those three things share a common structure, but it won't operate to organise the narrative in a dream. On the contrary, the exception is perhaps those instances where there's the inassimilable, non-integratable point in the trauma that generates, let's say, an association between even the angle between trees seen through a window and an angle seen at another point in the person's life, which, again, we can reasonably assume to be contiguous to the experience of the traumatic event. So it's as if, at the point where something can't be thought the psyche fixes on tiny contingent details of place which generates a seriality, this kind of piecemeal presentation in dreams, perhaps over many years or perhaps contracted to a short space of time, where we see the same meaningless elements, geographical, topographical, place elements, which have been abstracted from the initial situation as simply markers, as points of inscription 
of something that can't be thought or can't be imagined. And it is interesting the way in which you see this really quite extraordinary ubiquity of place there. This is something that opens up a rather fascinating, perhaps unrelated question, not necessarily linked to trauma, is why on earth does landscape painting exist? This is a real mystery. There's there's no good um, answer to this question. Today, if we see landscape question, uh, landscape painting, we take it for granted as a theme, as a motif. When we look at medieval art, you see a little bit of landscape background that often has iconographical significance, symbolism, but it takes quite some time for landscapes to start functioning and having a value as such in the production of art. The standard argument, which hasn't yet been superseded, is simply that people began to commission more landscape art the more that property went into private hands. So naturally you'll see an enormous expansion of landscape art in the 17th and 18th century. People wanted to show what they owned. More landowners, more landscape art. Unfortunately, this leaves a period of about 100 years where you start seeing the landscapes emerging without any people before the whole question of ownership starts to generate its own art. And one can wonder whether, as one art historian put it very beautifully, we aren't dealing here with something akin to the ghosts of dead stars, where in fact what we're really seeing are events and people, but they just don't happen to be there in the landscape. Very, very similar to this question of the amplification of the geographical place details in dreams in the absence of the human players that, again, one can reasonably assume were present in the traumatic events. Okay, three minutes to go. (laughs) Now, let me conclude then with a question about the intersubjective and the intrasubjective, which both Owen and Lisa have talked about. Should we see memory, as people tend to today, as a matter of individual agency, or on the contrary, as a question of a function deeply embedded in social and political relations? Does it make any sense to talk about dealing with trauma through memory or through any kind of practice, representation or inscription, without the presence of a third party, without moving from an intrasubjective space to an intersubjective space. And it is interesting here to remember Durkheim's definition of mourning as less an individual act of grief than a duty of a community. Again, exactly what we see being reversed in contemporary culture. Let me end then with a vignette from popular Buddhism, which seems to pose this question very well of the relation between the intra and the intersubjective. A woman has lost her child. She can't let go of the child's body, which she straps to her chest. 
And no one she visits, no healer, no religious person can bring this child back to life. And eventually, she meets a holy man who says to her, well, there's one way through your dilemma. You need to go to the home of someone, give them mustard seed, you've got to find the person, someone who hasn't experienced a loss in their life, who doesn't have a tale of grief. And then that will allow you to move forward. Well, she learns soon enough that everywhere she goes, she encounters a story of loss. Yeah? And little by little, she can relinquish her attachment to the dead child. You could say the memory that hasn't become a memory. What continues to haunt her? And we could say that every single psychoanalytic theory of mourning and of memory ultimately says the same thing, but without actually putting it like that. Compare all the theories. They all argue that for a human being to inscribe a trauma, to inscribe a tragic or brutal loss, whether it's of a personally invested meaning or of another human being, a love relation, what have you, this can only happen if one loss is put in relation to another loss, just as the woman in the fable links the story of her own loss to the stories of other people's loss. There has to be a relation established between one loss and another loss. It's exactly what Ballant, Klein, Freud say, Lacan, in all their different ways, that in order for a human being to treat a traumatic experience, that experience has to be put into a relation with another traumatic experience. And it's one of the reasons why working in groups can be so fruitful for people who've been through difficult times. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much for three wonderful presentations. I'm going to move you straight into questions from the floor because we have exceeded a bit our time uh, and it would be uh, very good to listen from our wonderful audience here. So the microphones are going to be rolling and there is a question here at the front. And then... Thank you very much. You really, really jolted my memory, the three of you. Um, what I heard is today that memory plays a vital role in our life and uh, it's, um, it also determines our um, experience, our notion of reality and who we are. And then, Lisa, you said that history is, uh, is uh, recorded events. And I, I was immediately thinking, is it uh, by politicians, philosophers, religious people? And then I was thinking, what is more important? Oral, which you mentioned, um, what is more important, the, the written or the oral? And then I was thinking, um, what is, um, which is more important, the, the recorded history or the memory as historic, historicity, personal memory, or the religious people like Tao, the path, 
the Jewish halacha, the, the Muslim Sharia, uh, do we need a third party, or as Immanuel Kant would say, the mover, uh, and think that he, he, she, it determines our reality, really? And we just have to go through the experiences. I'll take one more question, and then I'll ask you to react. Thanks for the interesting talk. So my question is to Darian. One of my interests, and I'm not an expert on it, is the hypnotherapy and hypnosis. Um, so I would like to ask you about subconscious memory, and to what extent do you think um, we should use subconscious memory to remember things or to forget certain things. I know that Freud himself was a, he was applying hypnotherapy, although later on he denied it or I don't know, he stopped it. So I would like to get your thoughts about it as well. Thank you. You would like to react? I think I'd like to hear Darian respond first because I mean in a sense, you know, your question is vast and, and my, my, no, no, it's, it's so vast that my answer to it really is both. I mean, I don't think it's an either-or. Of course, they're both important, and at different points in history, with different points in time, different ones will be more important, if you like, for the culture at large. Um, we're living through very individualistic moments in some parts of the globe, and in other parts of the globe, it's a very ritualized and religious moment, and those two are not apart. I mean, I'm not talking, you know, the East is in the West, and the West is in the East. They, they're not separate. Um, so these two forms, if you like, of, of um, remembering uh, the ritualized and religious and the, the individual um, and more fragmented or differently fragmented are both in play. And I think they're both incredibly important. I know, for me, um, personally, idiosyncratically, if you like, uh, the individualistic kind is more important because I don't indulge in recognized rituals. I probably have many others that I do indulge in. Um, but, you know, I think they are both important. And, and as for your question, I can probably you know, come back after Darian has had a go, but I can't do, I won't try and answer it. Um, yeah, the question of oral and written, I think it's slightly more complex because if you take the examples of the dreams I was talking about, couldn't you see the iteration of, let's say, a particular geographical point in a series of dreams as in itself a kind of writing? Yeah. So, to me, it's more a distinction between representation and inscription, both of those terms having quite a, a wide scope. As for the question of unconscious memories, Freud never used the term subconscious. He divides it into preconscious, unconscious, and conscious. The characteristic of the preconscious is that it is susceptible to recall. And this leads to... Not recognizing that distinction leads to a huge number of absurdities in contemporary memory research, which is most often about recall, not about memory. And in Freud's example, you have unconscious, where certain memories are inscribed, preconscious, where the memories are inscribed that can become conscious because they've undergone 
generally distortions that make them susceptible, acceptable to the ego. Freud was interested, though, in moving beyond the question of memory because he said that in his early clinical work, he could trace the origin of symptoms to memories. And he found that ultimately this was unsatisfactory as a method because what the symptoms would lead back to beyond memories were fantasies, fantasies constructed through little real details of things that had been seen or heard. So crucial to access those ineffable fragments, details of things seen and heard, and to try and construct the fantasy. But that's a work that goes beyond memory. And also memory isn't unitary. I mean, it's not there. It's not, you know, it's not like this book. Um, you can't, you, every time you go back to it, it's going to be different. Every time you recall, every time you remember, you take the pieces and put them back together differently. Um, Things erode. If I could just add, just to come back to this first question, I mean, obviously, um, I, I very much agree with what, um, with what Lisa said. As um, a writer, it's that borderline of the oral and the structured and the written that, that really fascinates me, um, especially the role of the the uh, creative writer, the novelist, the poet, in uh, shaping narratives of memory. And I, and I think especially in relation to ideas of, of place and both personal and um, um, societal associations with place. But I think now in the 21st century we have to add a third form, which is the concept of visual memory. Um, if you see how many's memory, um, I guess how many uh, people's memory banks of their computers, their phones, are almost entirely comprised not of anything oral or of anything written, but of something visual, of uh, photographs and films. And, you know, watching my uh, baby daughter, you know, swipe through my iPhone, the various photographs, I suddenly realised that, you know, and this is something that we were talking about earlier, that I used to associate photographs with the concept of um, anticipation um, and waiting and this time lag between experience and seeing. And, of course, she's going to be entering a world where that is absolutely immediate. You experience and then you see and, you know... I do lots of work um, in schools, and it becomes very clear to me that for 15- and 14-year-olds now, really, memory is primarily visual as a concept. There are two questions. I will ask you to be brief and to the point in your questions, and same to the panel, so we can have a few more before we conclude. Yeah, there is the lady here from Um, I'd just like to follow up what you've just said, uh, Owen, because I'm, I'm interested in the way in which um, society commemorates, um, particularly uh, through verbatim drama, which seems, there seems to be quite a lot of, like London Road or the, the play about the riots. Um, but also, um, ra- and, and London Road, of course, commemorates a rather unple- unpleasant series of events, the... the uh, uh, rapist in um, serial killer in Ipswich, but then there's the um, the unpleasant way of remembering. It seems to me, which is the way in which the you know, the hideousness of Jack the Ripper is pruriently advertised uh, through um, walks round um, that part of London where um, he was active. Are there not ways of remembering that actually we should be looking at and thinking? Well, is this the right way to do it? Well, yes, absolutely. And I think in, res- um, in, in respect to verbatim theatre, I think personally the difference that you have between a piece of verbatim theatre and a piece of theatre that uses oral history, that uses memory, but then 
also uses all of the magic tricks of theatre to invent upon that is the difference between recording and investing memory with meaning. And personally, if you think you know, that theatre has three stages, for me, even the best of verbatim theatre tends to only take you to stage two. And you need that interpretation, um, that challenging, that questioning of memory. And I would argue the shaping of, of writers and directors um, and actors to, um, to invest those memories with a sense of meaning and, and question. And I think if you follow that line, then you can begin to get a little closer to your question about are there, is there a correct way of remembering. And I think we saw this very interestingly around the centenary of the First World War, where there was a certain, a certain safety of distance and you felt a diffusing of the reality of experience in that commemoration, which all of us heard people slip from commemoration to talking about this celebration. And, you know, and I heard that several times on the radio, and it's a, okay, it, it's a verbal... It's a verbal slip, but it's an incredibly dangerous one. But that was about it's constituting the great moment of Britishness as well. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't about remembering only. It was about constituting yeah. a great yeah. sense of what it means to be British. Yeah, exactly. And that goes back again to sort of occupying a conflict uh, through memory. It was an incredibly specific perspective that we had on the First World War during that centenary period. Can we have, there is one question here, and the man there, please, if you, I would take here and there. Um, it's in the my question is actually sort of related to this idea of the commemoration of things, that ritualized sort of state-sponsored commemoration, and what impact do you think that has on personal remembering and the way in which people feel allowed to remember things, or kind of the narrative that events gain sort of nationally or globally or whatever and that's not necessarily the remembrance that person, people personally have but then they become sort of do you sort of feel that that has an impact on the way that people are allowed to remember things personally because of the way it's remembered in the nation well yes it's related partly to that I'm wondering when um, collective memory and uh, identity politics becomes a pathology so for instance Northern Ireland you know the orange parades or the, the Republican war songs sung by Wolf, Wolftone and other groups. Going back to, you know, two, two, 200 years, the Serbians celebrating a victory over the Turks in the 14th century. I mean, that's just bizarre. Um, and on to that, uh, touching upon Darian Leader's point about em uh, the need to empathize, and the, uh, as an example in modern context, Israel-Palestine, it seems like, uh, with few exceptions, uh, pe people in each of those two communities have a refusal to uh, recognize the suffering that each of their, each, the other communities have gone through in the recent past. Can I ask you three to react? Um, I, I just, you know, I wanted to say this Sorry. in response to Darian before, and I'll just, in response to you, um, and indeed into various forms of commemoration, the epigraph I chose for this book, which is, which is. Um, a very ironical book about remembering in some respects. It comes, comes from a man called, a uh, philosopher called Yerushalmi, and it says, is it possible that the antimon, antonym of forgetting is not remembering, but justice? And I think politically there's a real sense of that. I mean, you know, you, you can do the kind of repetitive remembering, which is of, of recent events, which is a form of forgetting and is a necessary kind of you know, ritual repetition in order to repair. Um, but you, if you can actually uh, put into being something in which, which people feel better about socially, in other words, 
bring justice into the picture. And for, remembering is not um, the opposite of forgetting. In it. Sorry, forget. Remembering is not an easy form of making the forgotten come back. It's justice which makes the forgotten forgettable. <laughs> I mean, that we don't need to keep coming back to it in the form of repetition. I've just muddled that completely, Darian. Mm. Oh, you, you, haven't, you haven't muddled Sorry, it at all. I know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I've read Lisa's book, which I admire a great deal, and we have a lot just in the title, Losing the Dead, because mm. isn't that the opposite of a lot of the contemporary imperatives, that precisely that's what we're not allowed to do. Compare mourning and burial rites in many non-Western cultures where the possessions of the lost loved one are burnt or destroyed or thrown away. I mean, today, you'd think there's something wrong if someone did that. But isn't there, at a certain level, an act of violence that has to take place in the process of, to use Lisa's title, losing the dead? And in a proper commemoration... It's not a question of keeping what's lost with one, but acts, perhaps, not just processes. Freud talked about the work of mourning, but there's also the question of acts of mourning, often violent acts. And it's through those acts that we can create a distance from the dead, which is, in a way, part of the work of uh, memorialization. Um, I think my short answer to both your questions is yes, yes. Um, um, but I think in terms of sort of the uh, state-sponsored, the uh, communal memory, it's not so much that people are not allowed. Um, it, 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 it's more about, I think, what sort of especially uh, younger generations who perhaps don't have that immediate access to any sort of previous form of remembering. Um, it, it's more about access. But I think it, it doesn't have to be entirely negative. I know of lots of instances, to talk about the First World War again, where within families it sent people back through their own personal archives for photographs and for letters. So I think it can still be a spur for you know, individual memory. Um, in response to the second question, I mean, again, yes, that is a very specific danger, but I think we also have to be careful about going too far the other way. I mean, obviously, coming from Wales, I'm uh, uh, very aware that in our recent history, the Welsh language not that long ago was on the brink. You know, when I went through school, uh, a Welsh wasn't even taught as a foreign language, although now I can say, fortunately... My daughter will very much probably go through a Welsh medium education. And the fact that she will is not just that she will share the same language as her grandparents, but obviously language is a means through which we can access a very specific kind of cultural memory. And when you lose that language, you lose so much and everything. And I'll just finish with a quote from George Burroughs, who in, in his book, Wild Wales, he said, the tragedy of the Welsh is that they will is that they will never forget that they were conquered by the English and the English have already forgotten. And I think, and what that touched upon, it's about who we take our cues from. And if we always take our cues from the populace, from the community who have already forgotten, then that is also equally dangerous. Well, sadly our time is up, but I would like to ask our panel our wonderful panelists, very warmly, because they gave us moments of reflection, of beauty, of, uh, you know, so many chances to reflect on a very important issue. And uh, thank you for your questions, and let's continue celebrating uh, foundations and, and, and trying to understand why we remember. The festival continues this afternoon. I hope you'll be able to enjoy. It closes this evening with... Uh, 
presentation of the Functionalists, a wonderful band from the anthropology department here at the school. So do come and enjoy music uh, and, uh, and inspiration for our collective sensibility throughout the day. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much.